This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Richard Watts with you here, taking you through until midday today on Smart Arts. My first guest for the morning has just joined us in the studio. Uh, Vipu Shivalasa joins us to talk about the exhibition Untied, which is a show that he's curated and which is presenting the work of five contemporary artists from Thailand who now live and work in Australia. Vipu, welcome to Triple R. Hello, Swadikab. So... Uh, Talk to us about this exhibition. Why uh, your own background is Thai Australian, and yes. uh, was that one of the reasons why you then wanted to what work through personal networks to bring a group of artists together whose work you admire as well as work that resonates with you? Yeah, I think you put it better than I can. Uh, but I have been living in Australia almost thirty years now, and during that this time, I haven't seen any show like this before. I have seen many shows about uh, other Asian artists, but never seen one Thai artist. I saw one in Goma in Brisbane, but they are Thai artists from Thailand. But because they live here in Australia, I would like to see something that connect the two countries together. So I put together this, this show, Thai Australian artists. Why do you think there hasn't been as much focus on Thai Australian artists as perhaps artists from other areas in Southeast Asia and Asia more broadly? Because I can think of galleries in Melbourne, in Sydney and elsewhere that focus very specifically perhaps on contemporary art from Japan, China and elsewhere, mm. but not Thai Australian artists. Why has there been this oversight? That's yeah, I'm wondering too, because Thailand and Australia has a very, very strong relationship. Actually, in 2017, we celebrated uh, um, the relationship for 65 years together. And the current king of Thailand actually studied here in Australia. So there is a quite strong and deep relationship between the two countries. So I'm just, that's why I think I'm doing it, because no one else is doing it. Now, the exhibition Untied mm -hmm. is showing at Growl Project in Clifton Hill. And as I said, uh, you've curated five contemporary artists yes. uh, working across a range of media. So performance, painting, ceramic, sculpture, video and installation. Mm. It's quite a broad uh, range of work beyond the ethnicity, the, the cultural identity of the, of the artists. What connects their practices? Yes, I, I decided to choose a variety of um, art practice just to showcase of um, you know, the, the diversity of Thai contemporary arts in Australia. And the five of them working has loosely based on the culture ship and the immigration experience. They all come to Australia at different reasons and different times, and some of them don't know each other. But by doing, putting them together, they create this kind of network for Thai artists. And also the five of them range from emerging, mid-career and established artists. So you could see the variety of the artwork in the show. Now, given that you're an artist yourself uh, working yeah, in I ceramics, have you, were you tempted to put yourself into the show as well? Uh, I, yes, I do, but I, I thought it would be a bit weird, like creating the show, putting this together the show, and then um, put my own work in. Having said that, I seen right now I seen kind of a trend that artists create the show and then also putting their work in the show as well. It's not as 
before it feel like a bit really weird you're doing that but now I see like many people doing it it does sometimes strike me as perhaps a little bit self-indulgent it's like editing mm. a book and going and I'll put my short story <laughs> in at the front of the book or something like that yeah it could be a, a conflict of interest as well uh, but having said that you know the show has been um, so successful in terms of media um, interest and also uh, art community interest in the show um, so I'm quite happy that I Uh, people actually um, find out about the show. Now, given, as we said, that you're a visual artist yourself, that's clearly influenced your creation, uh, and sorry, your curation of the exhibition. Yes. You work in kind of three dimensions. Uh, so uh, are you more attracted, do you think, to, to work that has that kind of solidity and, and tactile nature? Um, I, actually, I like painting. Even though I couldn't do the painting, I think that's why I like painting. Uh, when I saw 3D arts, I kind of feel like, oh, I can do this. I can do better or I know how to make it. But with the painting, uh, I just don't know how to do it. So I think I attract to the 2D arts more. Yeah, because one of the reasons I asked, I know there is one of the artists you've curated in the show yep. does focus on ceramics. Yes, uh, as part yes, of their own. Chai. Yeah. Yes. So I wondered whether there was a, a bi your own personal bias there. Uh, mainly because I like his work a whole lot. And I think he's uh, one of the best people who, uh, who work with plaster in Australia. Um, that's probably the main reason. Yeah. Tell mm. us a little bit more about him and the work that's in the exhibition. Uh, so Mishai, he used to be the head of ceramic dep uh, department at Silapakon University in Thailand, the art university. He moved to Australia quite, I think, almost 20 years now. He married an Australian girl. and. What apart from making his own art, he also has a business produce, uh, producing mold, plaster mold for other artists. And that's actually he basically almost the only one person that provides this service in Australia. No one else wants to do it. I don't know why. And it become like very rich because of this. There's <laughs> no competitor. And what about the work, uh, his work that's in the exhibition? Yeah, his work, he made two body of works. One is... Um, kind of look like a Buddha's, but actually not the Buddha, and has a marks, different kind of marks on them. The other, the other body of work is Jagan, which is of ours. This one is very technical challenge because he's using Mo and stack them in different way, but the same Mo. So I'm not, I'm a, well, and the way he stack it, it create different shape and quite unusual technique for the Mo making From the very specific materiality mm -hmm. of uh, that artist's practice, you've also then got a performance artist participating. Yes, Nakarin uh, uh, so, uh, uh, Jekler's uh, work, which is both performance, but also then what video documentation of the performance? Yes, actually, he has two kind of work. What well, the video performance he did it uh, while he was in Bangkok, and then the performance will be just one off performance at the opening night. It's all about fire, the five the five elements, uh, the four elements: fire, wind earth and water, the fire one of them. So he's going to play with that. And the way he performed perform his, uh, his piece is just like um, when the, uh, uh, the monk making holy water in Thailand by dripping candles into the water and then create kind of like patterns there. But for this performance, he will create this pattern with candle but without water.
And so uh, his performance will be at the opening night of yes. Untied, which yes. is tonight, tonight. at 5.30pm. It is a ticketed event, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll give the uh, the, the booking details mm. in a moment for, and also the address of the gallery if people are intrigued about our conversation about the exhibition mm. Untied uh, on at Grau Project in Clifton Hill. There's a, uh, a couple of other artists involved in the work. The Melbourne-based painter... Uh, Bandit. Bandit, yes. Talk to us about their work. Bandit is very interesting because he used to be a poster, uh, poster painter. Posters and sign writing. Yes, yeah. yes, in Thailand. Uh, so when he moved, and he also trained as a traditional uh, Thai painter. So when he moved to Melbourne, he was fascinated by the Mel- Melbourne street art scene. And he combined the street art and Thai traditional art together that's resolving kind of very unusual for me. It looked very traditional, but when you look closer, but it isn't traditional at all. It got this uh, graffiti and silk screen and print on the work, but he blended it together really well. It sounds almost uh, a subversion of kind of traditional law uh, uh, Thai art in that regard. Has there been yep. any kind of pushback from other artists saying this is a kind of a disrespectful way to treat a traditional art form? Uh, he hasn't had a show in Thailand just yet. So, so far, it's been a very positive from the Australian art community and art um, appreciator. But uh, I'm not sure how well would it be if he's exhibited in Thailand. Yeah. But f- maybe 10 years ago, he probably get kind of criticism. But I think now it would be more like, oh, wow, we haven't seen this kind of work before. Let's do more. Let's see more of it. Well, it, it, mm. certainly to my, from what you've said of the work, the fact mm. that it's uh, kind of blending mm. graffiti and then more traditional styles, that kind of creative fusion that happens is almost symbolic of mm. uh, the ex- presumably the, the lived experience of being a Thai Australian artist as well. You're yes. informed by one culture living in another mm. and expressing that through art. Yeah, and it's all about, this is the show, the, the show is all about, the, the blend between the two cultures together. Uh, and I believe there's one other artist in the exhibition uh, who, oh, no, two other artists two that artists, we have. Two artists, yeah, Pimpisa and Papdawan. Yeah, Papdawan is uh, Sydney-based. She's probably the most established artist in the show. She has been in Sydney Biennale, Bangkok Biennale, and a lot more show. Uh, for this show, she presents a painting of elephants, but all the elephants are not in the bush. It's in different kind of environment. So just like herself, moving from Thailand to Australia, so that's how she um, talk about herself that way. The other person is Pimpisa. She is uh, more like installation based. So for this show, she pre- present um, uh, a work that kind of has an S and M influence for her practice, and also work with the community by asking people to donate a lot of pillow for her installations. If you've just tuned in, we're talking about the exhibition Untied, which mm-hmm. is showing at Grau Project in Alexandra Parade, Clifton Hill, mm-hmm. uh, from the 13th of June until the 27th of July. I'm speaking with the exhibition's curator, uh, Vipu Shivalasa. Yeah. What's your hope for the impact of this exhibition in terms of uh, not only highlighting, as mm-hmm. we said earlier, um, the the 
kind of the work and the creative practices of Thai Australian artists. Are you hoping that it will generate greater discussion within the the art sector more broadly, turn more attention not only on these artists but other artists from the the Thai Australian community? Yeah, that's what <laughs> you already answered the questions. Yes, that's what I'm hoping for because uh, there's so many Thai artists here in in Australia that I would like to show them, but the their practice just doesn't fit with this context. And um, there is like illustration illustrators, really f- uh, famous. Thai illustrator in Australia or with water painter colors a watercolor painter and it's so many more that I want to show but probably not this time and also when you say like I'm a creator sometimes I feel a bit awkward too because I feel like I'm actually an artist and I would like to be maybe see as initiator of the project and the gallery actually do a lot of hard work to put the show together as a creator i feel like maybe like too big a word for me yeah uh, well curator is a, a specialist term yeah. certainly but mm. uh, you have nonetheless kind of curated this exhibition by by drawing on your contacts and bringing the artists in yes could we perhaps hope for an untied two in uh, in a year or two yes i think so and also maybe uh this show could be traveling as well so quite a few people ex- actually express interest in um having a show in maybe in thailand or maybe in other gallery but that's the thing that the future i think the current thing is come and see the show and I'm not sure if you realize that the gallery also presents a special drink that actually create to match the artwork. Yes, the, the uh, Grau Project signature is a, 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 an artist-curated drinking. Every show is celebrated with cocktails created to yes. uh, kind of respond to the mood and the philosophy of the exhibition. So they're yeah. served at the opening night. Uh, there are also uh, they're also served at the uh, uh, Trink think tours available every Thursday and Friday, a guided walkthrough mm. of the exhibition yes. with the cocktail served as yeah. well. For more information, go to growlproject.com. That's G-R-A-U, mm. project with a K instead of a C at the end, growlproject.com. Vipu, thank you so much for joining us at Triple R. Thank you very much, Copcoon Crab Richard. Triple R. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by playwright Tom Holloway, who has uh, adapted the much-loved book Storm Boy for the stage. One of the challenges of creating a play like this is, of course, that it features a couple of pelicans, uh, quite a few, well, three, uh, one of which, uh, Mr Percival, is a key character in the book. How do you put pelicans on stage? You get Dead Puppet Society to bring them to life. I'm also joined in the studio by David Morton, the creative director of Dead Puppet Society Society, and associate director and puppet designer for Storm Boy. Guys, welcome to Triple R. Tom, lovely to have you back. Oh, it's lovely to be here. It's always lovely to coming into Triple R. So why did you want to adapt Storm Boy? It's a it's kind of a, an iconic Australian book and mm. iconic 70s film as well. Mm. So Well it um uh, when it was first when we first did it, it was actually a project bought to me, but the moment that I got told about it, I could not believe it had been bought to me. Because I grew up uh out like such a big fan of that book. I lived in this uh, little area when I was very, very, very young, just outside of Hobart, called Mount Dromedary. And on the Derwent River below it, there would be black swans and pelicans. And my mum told me that when I was a little kid, I used to be kind of obsessed with these pelicans down there. And then she got me the Storm Boy book because of those pelicans. 
And the book that I grew up with was the one with these illustrations by Robert Ingpen, which are these, like, beautiful, moody illustrations that don't tell the story. They just kind of create the kurong and create the world that the story is set in. And I used to just pour over them kind of hour after hour. So when the chance came up as an adult to go back and write an adaptation of it, I just couldn't believe it. It felt like a, a job that came down from the heavens for me. And did you, from the, the very beginning of the adaption process, think of puppets to, to bring the pelicans and other wildlife to life? Well, one of the wonderful things about being a playwright, Richard, is that you can write in a script, Mr Percival the pelican walk, enters the stage and other people have to decide how to do that. <laughs> uh, David, how did you get involved in this production? Yeah, so we, um, uh, my partner Nick and I, who 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 I run Dead Puppet Society with, had a, a meeting sort of mid last year with Sam Strong, the artistic director of Queensland Theatre, who's the director on Stormboy, and um, and we were talking about a, a totally different project that we were working with Queensland Theatre to take over to the UK, and um, and yeah, you just sort of mentioned in passing that Stormboy looked like it would be on the slate for for programming with um, Queensland Theatre and Melbourne Theatre Company this year, and and that. He was facing exactly that question: How on earth do we bring to life this this iconic Australian character who is a bird? <laughs> and and would we be interested in in you know beginning a conversation about how that could how that could be something that Dead Puppets created to to add to the production? And yeah, our jaws sort of hit the floor. We had sort of a similar reaction, having grown up in love with this book. And I still remember the first time it was read to us in the the um, the school library at Payne Road State School in in Brisbane. And and yeah, it was just sort of incredible to yeah think that we were going to be able to to create this character so the book is based uh sorry the book is written by uh colin tealy uh That's is right. the author's name uh who wrote uh, like it would now be described as young adult fiction perhaps uh but mm. it was uh, a book for children and young people before ya was a, a marketing mm. term being mm. bandied about yes it's about a boy and a pelican and the friendship between them it's also about the boy and his father it's about the father and the father's relationship with another outsider it's about loneliness it's about the environment uh it's a really rich story to to consider and then unpack and Yes, it's been adapted for the screen twice, once very successfully, once less so. <laughs> what were the biggest challenges of the adaptation process? Well, um, I actually saw all those things that you just described as the kind of great, greatest opportunities of it. Because what, why I think we love this book so much is that it treats children with a great deal of respect because it, it challenges them to have to deal with some really big emotional stuff, you know, loss and love and loneliness, like you said. These are huge themes and they're big parts of childhood, right? You experience these things first when you're when you're a kid. And uh, Tilly in that original book just doesn't shy away from it. Um, and that's what's so magical about it. And that's why we love these characters so much. One of the things is that the book is I mean, this is, a, this is a silly thing to say, but the book is full of words, right? It's really kind of poetic because the words are really kind of painting so much of that um, to and fro, sway, um, the wind, the seasons of the Kurong. And in theatre, when you're a playwright, you're only bringing one part of the world to the stage. You're just bringing the words. Um, and so I 
purposefully tried to keep the language in it quite simple and use silence a lot and stillness a lot to um, as an offer um, for designers and puppet makers and things like that to fill that world because that wasn't so much my job. My job I saw is really drilling into the heart of uh, Storm Boy and Fingerbone Bill and Hideaway Tom and the three pelicans and then this world is to be built by others and so I could do that you know it was a it's a lucky thing in theatre again that you you've got a team of people to help you make a world and the team of people uh, at uh, Dead Puppet Society who are kind of like an iconic Queensland company uh, perhaps not as well known in Melbourne as they should be but also I mean you've been doing stuff over uh, in the UK recently at the at a museum over there yeah doing your your Charles Darwin show yeah we yeah so we, we've we just closed yet yeah, uh, almost six month run of um, of the wider earth which which began life again with Queensland theatre <laughs> and then um yeah transferred to Sydney festival start of last year and got uh, greenlit by the Natural History Museum in London. So they worked with us to build a, a, a custom space in one of the beautiful old vaulted galleries there. And it's quite extraordinary to take this mm. little show that, you know, <laughs> got built from the ground up in Brisbane. Yeah. And then we took it to sort of Charles Darwin's, yeah, mm. Mm, sort of epicentre. Yeah. It's a great. museum that every other museum wants to be. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very beautiful. Because I've only <laughs> seen one uh, kind of dead puppet society show to date, and that was Laserbeak man at Brisbane Festival a couple of years ago and which I really enjoyed and I want to see it tour. Um, But let's talk about the art of puppetry and particularly as it applies to this show because one of the joys of puppetry is instilling life in an inanimate object and the audience buy into that, whether it's a realistic puppet or not. That process of the puppeteer animating and bringing life to an object is, is really a form of magic. Yeah, hey, that's great to have it described like that. I love it. We were actually just having a chat beforehand over a coffee about, you know, what we've really tried to do with these puppets is to is to keep them obviously not real. You know, you, you don't... I don't think anyone's going to look at these puppets at first glance and go, oh, wow, I, I could have mistaken that for a pelican. It's like, no, absolutely not. They're obviously made of, you know, leather and, and steel and bits of wood, but the way that the puppeteers move them and the, the behavioural studies that we've all been through together and, and, and the way that they interact with the other characters and the fact that the other actors are so incredible at investing in these, mm. you know, pieces of sharp wood, you know, as, as, as real pelicans, they do, they come to life. And by keeping it sort of a little bit abstract, I think that it, it leaves room for the audience to imagine th- that, mm. that character and, and that animal and their imaginations are are far better at bringing them to life than we are. <laughs> so sort of giving enough hints that, yeah, you leave it open for them to build that to build that world. And how many puppeteers are walk, working on the show? Because I know in terms of the production itself, you're not just kind of animating uh, the pelican puppets. You've got a range of other... There's a tiger snake in there and yeah. kind of, there's a dozen at least other animals. So how many puppeteers are involved in the show? Uh, there are three in the in the work, yeah. And so, and yeah, we've tried to build other, other creatures... Uh, some of which are called for in the script. Actually, I think all of them call for in the script that we've built. But but that, yes, yeah, mm. I think sort of like to really try and bring that that natural world of the Kurong to life, not not just in sort of the epic beauty of the landscape, which you know is, is mm. quite stunning the way it's playing out in the design, but but also the, the mm. quirkiness of a fairy penguin and the viciousness of an angry tiger snake, and so that that yeah, sort and of even feels just like with the more. pelicans, there's. There's actually oh, yeah. three baby pelicans. Yeah. There's three adolescent pelicans, and then yeah. there's grown-up <laughs> pelicans too. You know, there's so much going on. Yeah. Yeah. Now, 
one of the things that uh, happened to me once, I realised just how much impact reading Storm Boy as a kid and seeing the, the 70s film at the cinema when it first came out had had on me. Uh, years ago, I flew over to Adelaide for the first time in years and I looked down and I saw the Coorong and I had, my heart leapt kind of in my chest. I had this moment of that is a place of magic. Did you go there, Tom, when you were kind of adapting and reading and thinking about the book or did you want to stay away from it in order to bring an imaginary version of that kind of waterland and wetland yeah, to I life. Yeah, I mean, it's, an, it's actually not, it's a reason also why I haven't seen the recent film because I want Storm Boy to... In, for me, growing up, Storm Boy and the Coorong was this kind of place of dreams. And, yeah, I had experiences running along big empty uh, kind of ta- huge Tasmanian beaches with big surf and seaweed everywhere, but it just felt so... Uh, you, w- well, first of all, these... Hideaway Tom and Storm Boy have kind of escaped life there. So it, it does feel like a kind of uh, another world, a different place in the book, a different emotional place. And uh, the Kurong the features very heavily in this production. There's some beautiful footage of it that kind of appears all the way through. It's absolutely incredible. Um, but for me, it, it is this, it's, it's a land of of kind of real dreams of, a, of another place and a uh, another kind of way of life and so I, I guess in a perhaps fairly silly way I don't want to I feel like you know meeting your heroes if I go there it will suddenly be real <laughs> in terms of that kind of that process as well David did have did have you gone there have you sat on beaches and to watch pelicans there or just kind of what a couple of YouTube videos yeah yeah oh good old YouTube <laughs> lifesaver uh, look not not Kurong pelicans but yeah mm. an enormous amount of time watching them and actually seeing how little they sometimes do mm. like a still pelican may as well be totally dead <laughs> which is quite difficult in the in a puppet world where when an object is at full stillness it is mm. it is dead so you know that's something that we've yeah mm. we've sort of had to work through but yeah all of the initial uh, drawings for the mechanisms were done watching pelicans Pelicans to find what those, you know, super iconic movements are, and to try and distill them down into something that was <laughs> at least partially operable. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing about pelicans is they can actually be quite vicious as well. The last time mm. I was walking along the Torrens River in Adelaide, I noticed a big sign saying "Do not feed the pelicans; they bite." <laughs> mm. So uh, yes, we have this kind of idealised, romanticised mm. view of pelicans, like Mr. Percival, but at the same time, they're wild animals as well. And Absolutely. in my version, poor Hideaway Tom's bum does get a bit of a pecking <laughs> on a number of occasions because of how wild those pelicans are. Yeah. Um, speaking with Tom Holloway and David Morton about the Queensland Theatre and Melbourne Theatre Company co-production of Storm Boy. The Melbourne season is running from the 17th of June until the 20th of July at the Southbank Theatre in the Sumner and you can book at mtc.com.au or by calling 86880800. Tom, do you see this as a show for children, for families, for adults, for everybody? Um, I mean, it's it's probably a bit of a cliche to say that it's for everybody, but I, I watched a run uh, yesterday or the day before and I just was getting absolutely swept up in it. You know, it's the same thing that we were saying back at the beginning, that the, the themes in this book are so big. They're about family, they're about heartache, they're about kind of grief. Um, they're three people and some pelicans just trying to have a good time too. So I 
I think it is kind of like the, the themes are serious and are for everyone. Um, the jokes are pretty bad. I apologise for that. I wrote them. <laughs> They're good bad. <laughs> They're good bad. <laughs> I've spent, I am now a father, but I've spent my entire <laughs> life preparing to be a father in terms of humour. Um, uh, and so I think like I, I was shedding... Uh, more than a few tears the other day watching it and I know it quite well too you know um, but it's just you just get you just fall in love with these characters and the, what they're going through is really complex and really um, difficult and their hearts are so big they they really want to be doing the best thing even if they're struggling to do that so I think from yeah tiny little kids through to grandmas I think everyone's heart is going to be at risk in the, watching this show David sometimes Adults may go, oh, puppets, it's clearly a kid's show. But puppetry yeah. can be an adult art form as well. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so easy to dismiss the form, you know, as, as being just for young people. But we're all kids still inside, right? And, yeah. I, and I think what we try and do with the form is to is to make it honest and to make it real. There's nothing cheesy about mm. these puppets and these pelicans. They're like, yeah, I like to think that, you know, they're sort of, they're structurally quite beautiful and, mm. and the way that they move and the way that, that the stunning puppeteers who are bringing them to life sort of play with them, it... I don't know, it's quite it's quite transcendent, I think, to watch them. So it's like, obviously, mm. I'm deeply biased, but there you go. <laughs> these, these moments in the show where the pelicans um, kind of spread their wings to fly off, I mean, you just hear, whenever it happens in the room, you hear everyone in the room kind of going, <gasps> it just affects everyone. You can't help it. I'm looking forward to having that affect me in that way <laughs> when I get to get along and see Stormboy myself. And I've been chatting with Tom Holloway and David Morton about Stormboy. Uh, guys, thanks for coming in. Oh, it's always a pleasure coming in and talking to you, Richard. And I'm really looking forward to the show. Hey, me too. Thank you. <laughs> Putting Morning. funk in your trunk. Three triple R. Let's talk about the moon. As I mentioned at the start of the show, uh, the 50th anniversary of the very first moon landing is coming up uh, and there's all kinds of events that are kind of acknowledging that and exploring that, some directly, some kind of in a more abstract way. But it's not just the moon landing, it's the moon itself. It's an enduring object of fascination and has been probably since the very first early humans dropped down from a tree and stared up at the night sky probably even earlier and joining us to tell us more from Geelong Gallery curator Lisa Sullivan. Lisa, hello. Hi Richard. So what is the fascination for the moon? What what does the moon mean to artists? Can it be distilled in one quick catchphrase? Not really. It's pretty comprehensive and indeed the works that we've brought together for this exhibition are fairly broad. They span centuries. They span artistic approaches from paintings, prints, photography, uh, sculpture, installation, moving image. Um, and I think the interest of artists has been very broad. I mean, um, I think it's the evocative, beautiful nature of the moon in its night in the night sky. It's constantly changing phases has also been an inspiration for artists and indeed one of the themes of the exhibition. There are five themes of the exhibition. One of the themes looks specifically at artists' responses to the phases of the moon and its transit across the night sky. And I think the fact that it's just a constant in our night sky, the fact that it unites us all around the world, we all see the moon. Of, of course, we see different sort of aspects of it depending on our hemispheres, but it's just been such an evocative thing for artists and also writers and musicians alike. There is something uh, enduring about that about knowing that 
I don't know, if you're away from your loved one or, or partner or whatever it might be, you can both look up at the moon at the same time and know that you're sharing the same experience from different sides of the country, for example. Absolutely. You're such a romantic. Richard, I've felt the same thing myself. <laughs> so the exhibition, as we said, uh, the, the 20th of July is the the actual 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. Indeed. And, in, and indeed, that's the NASA date, of course. And I'm very aware that um, many listeners may have had a lived experience of the 21st. 1st of July here in Australia, uh, Australian Eastern Standard Time. But the 20th of July is obviously the date that NASA celebrates as the landing. And then, of course, it was the early hours of the 21st of July when Neil Armstrong first stepped on the moon, followed by Buzz Aldrin not long after. So it's a, it's a landmark, that, that moment in human history. It is, and it's really hard to comprehend um, uh, just how significant it must have been. I mean, it was televised. It was watched by apparently 600 million people around the world. And the, the the new frontier, like venturing to this new frontier with all of its risks and dangers and joys. Um, I mean, I think um, Armstrong said something about the fact that, you know, that even just the view of the Earth from the moon orbiting around the moon was worth the price of the ticket to go. <laughs> you know, it's just that notion that it was one of the orbiting the moon is an opportunity for astronauts to look back on the earth um, and just that new frontier of venturing to the moon must have been incredibly significant and uh, again to, to draw back to what we were saying about that shared experience of looking at the moon that shared human experience of so many millions of people watching the same of the one event on television and and an event which was now it's almost casual there have been multiple moon landings and over time the launches of space shuttles and rockets have become commonplace but but back then this was the the greatest humanity's greatest adventure and the 60s was such a change of a period of change you know the the, the in music in in popular culture um and it was just such a triumph i think um it was a, a vision of um, jfk of course to get to the moon for the americans to, to beat the russians so there was that tension of the Cold War and the and the the two countries wanting to get there first. Um, so yeah, it, w- it would have been an incredibly important event. And you know, the moon it, it, it influences us in so many different ways. Um, you know, think of our tides. You know, think of what we can and can't do under moonlight as it changes through its phases. It's just such such an incredible thing to have to have reached um, and and to to have for the for the astronauts to have walked on the moon and to encounter the moon's surface, um, which of course was described as being fine and powdery um, or a sort of very desolate, melancholy landscape. Um, So, yeah, quite an incredible thing. Now, the exhibition at Geelong Gallery, The Moon, you're... kind of drawn together artworks from a range of other institutions uh, and, as we've said, also a range of creative responses to the moon, whether it's a kind of the, a, a quiet, subtle moonrise, for example, or, or a silent film or Absolutely, more yeah. contemporary photo- photographic work. Absolutely. There, there are five um, individual themes, but they're all obviously quite interconnected, one of which is Journeys to the Moon, which looks specifically at, um, you know, venturing to the moon through NASA photographs, through a moving image sequence by American artist Michael Light, which in fact was the starting point for this exhibition. A wonderful sequence of 1969 Apollo mission images that he spliced together in a seven-minute moving image um, film. Um, we've got paintings um, by artists looking at uh, you know NASA um, journeys. We've got um, works by Damiano Bobtoli, for example, which brings together NASA moon imagery with um, uh, some of the individuals that were involved with the Manson murders to 
to coalesce these two significant events that happened in 1969. Um, we've also got um, uh, another theme, which is uh, the light of the moon, which is two single-room artist installations, one by Scottish artist Katie Patterson, where she has created with Osram, the Light Globe Company, a series of 280 nine light globes that simulate moonlight so we'll be sharing with our visitors moonlight within the building which should be very special and Australian artist Louise Weaver who's whose work Moonlight Becomes You is a wonderful single room installation of um, crocheted animals uh, set within a lunar sort of landscape. Um, we also have the theme of phases of the moon, which I've already mentioned, uh, paper moon, which looks specifically at a range of works on paper, photographs, prints, drawings, etc. Um, and Evocations and Imaginings, which is a, a, a group of historical works that really look at that romantic evocation of moonlight over a landscape, or also imagine what it might be like to travel to the moon through a wonderful film, a 1902 film by Georges Méliès, a Voyage to the Moon, which is a very famous one. That iconic image of the man in the moon with the rocket in his eye. It's fantastic. It's such a beautiful image. And of course, it only appears for about three seconds in a sequence of about seven minutes of wonderful, very early cinematic footage. But we also have a wonderful still of it as well that people can see. Now, in terms of the the kind of the span of history that the exhibition covers. Uh, as we've said, the moon has fascinated artists and poets and thinkers and, and just general human beings, regardless of, of the, their profession or their, their field. Uh, since time immemorial, what's the oldest work in the exhibition? Yeah, absolutely. The oldest work is a woodcut by Albrecht Dürer, a well-known German printmaker. Uh, he uh, has created a, a work back in 1511. So that's the earliest work in the collection, which we have from the National Gallery of Victoria collection. And it's the Virgin on the Crescent. And it's a beautiful um, symbolic image of obviously relating to Christianity and the notion of the Virgin and the, and the, and the Crescent Moon, obviously relating to fertility and that notion of the Virgin Mary giving birth to, to Jesus. Now, as well as the uh, the exhibition exploring those five key themes that you've addressed, like any good gallery, Geelong Gallery has also then programmed a series of public events and talks and so forth. So uh, there's a floor talk, a free floor talk on Saturday the 22nd of June. There's uh, I Spy Art Adventures for Children That's as right. well, uh, including uh, so uh, on Monday the 8th of July from 10.15, uh, there's uh, an event on there for kids. There's claymation and more. How important, when you're actually developing an exhibition, how early in the process do you begin to imagine these kind of ancillary events that flesh out the the exhibition? Do you kind of do they come late? Are they add-ons, or are you thinking about them right from the word go? I'm always thinking about them. I have a colleague, of course, who develops the program, um, so we obviously have conversations along the way and the, in the development of the exhibition. Um, but certainly, from my point of view, from a curatorial point of view, um, those additional elements are really critical. One of the key things about curating is, is you know, bringing works to life um, for audiences, making works relevant, linking in with something significant like this 50th anniversary, uh, and then 
providing opportunities for audiences to engage at a deeper level. Um, and so that's really critically important for all ages. So we develop programs, as you've mentioned, from, from um, preschoolers all the way through to more senior individuals. We've got um, a pop-up planetarium coming up, which will be fantastic. We've also got some late night viewings for, for people who might like to come and see the, the uh, exhibition after hours. Uh, and we've even got a trivia night, which I will be fantastic. That, which, yeah, I love the idea of okay, moon-based trivia. I've been told I cannot participate, unfortunately. <laughs> well, that's understandable. You've been putting a lot of work into this exhibition, so I'm suspecting that, yes, various trivial facts about the moon and artists who've uh, kind of engaged with it as a theme, you'd probably, yeah... You'd, you'd, I you'd might have a little bit of an advantage. Just a slight <laughs> advantage. The details of the expansive uh, events program connected with the exhibition The Moon at www.geelonggallery.org. .au. I've been chatting with curator Lisa Sullivan about the moon. Lisa, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks very much, Richard. Three Triple R. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.